Good morning, Grace Chapel. Uh, some people are saying, I've heard, I've been hearing on the news that we are at a pivotal, pivotal point in our world's history. Would you, would you say so? Could, could be. Maybe we've been there for a while. And that may be so. Okay, I'll, I'll agree. That may be so. There have been similar points throughout the history of the world where we probably wish we could go back and make better choices, make, make uh, better responses and respond differently. But what I do know is that we are at a pivotal point in John's account that we've been going through together for the last few months. His account of the history of the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, anything about Jesus, any talk, any discussion, any time we talk about Jesus, brings hope and clarity, doesn't it? It just does. It's, it brings hope and clarity to whatever you and I may be experiencing, no matter how good or how bad, uh, or, or that the, what, what we're encountering in this life. And his story always brings us to pivotal points, to pivotal response points. Uh, there should not be a Sunday when we gather together as one and worship God that we are not moved to some sort of response. If that Sunday comes and goes, then we're sleeping, spiritually speaking. We're not getting it. And today in John chapter 11, we're kind of halfway through the story that John wants to tell us about Jesus. It's been about three years that we've been going through, well, that John's been taking us through the life of Jesus. And now when we finish with today, it's one week. The whole rest of the half, half, last half of the book is one week, seven days in the life of Christ. So today in John 11, we're going to read the true story of a remarkable miracle. It's the seventh of seven signs. It's a seventh sign so inescapably divine it forced the Jewish authorities at the time of Christ, it forced their hand and it put them into an inescapable position. They could not avoid what was coming down the pipe and they had to come up with a response. Just like you're going to have to, I'm going to have to come up with a response today at the end as to what do we do with Jesus? What do we do with this man who calls himself the Son of Man, the God-Man, Jesus Christ? He can't be allowed, they say, to exist any longer. We've had it. Death for Jesus was the response that we're going to see in John chapter 11 at this crucial point in their lives. And ironically, death for Jesus was God's response right? It's God's response for our crucial need to deal with our sin. And wonder of wonders, the work of Jesus Christ through his death on the cross for you and me, we who believe in that death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins, brings real life. So how do we respond to Jesus? It's a pivotal point in our lives. It's a matter of life and death. Verse 1, chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill. It was ill. It was Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And if you're reading in the other Gospels, you've got a lot of backstory going on about this family. It's all, it's all pretty good. 
And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And we go on to read that Jesus and his disciples wait a few days at the Lord's command before they go. And then they set off to Bethany and arrive in Bethany after Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. So a lot of time has gone by. Obvious question, what? Why did Jesus delay? Why this four-day wait, at least four days? Well, there, there was a superstition. Uh, it was a sort of Jewish belief, actually, that the soul of a deceased person hovered over the corpse for three days after death until decomposition set in. I know it's not a nice thought, but hey, life and death, this is real. And it was not until the third day that death was considered to be irreversible. An obvious allusion to what? Well, we're going to see in seven days Jesus' death on the cross and him being put in the tomb and rising after three days. But here, Jesus plays off that kind of sinking, and he says what was happening to Lazarus was for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It wasn't so that people would applaud. It wasn't so that people would praise him but rather so that men and women might have a clearer understanding of who he really was and therefore be able to trust him, to trust him all that much more. Do you trust Jesus today? How much? Could you quantify it? Jesus Christ is glorified whenever his character is made known. Who's going to make his character known? Who? You are, yeah. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Easy answers. Okay, it's going to get harder. No, I'm listening. Stories about the character of Ukrainian Christians are circulating our globe. Have you been reading them? Have you been hearing about them? They're amazing. And to me, Jesus Christ is glorified by those stories, not the Ukrainians. Jesus Christ is glorified by all those stories that are finger points to God. That he is the source for all that boldness, all that humility, all that sacrifice, all that strength. It's God. Do you ever wonder why? You may have asked that this morning. Do you ever wonder why? Why does evil remain? Why do good people suffer? Why doesn't what I ask God for seem to be answered? Why does it go unanswered? Could it be, could it be that Jesus' character shown in me, displayed through all the frustrations of this life, is what really glorifies God? Isn't it for God's glorification that I even exist? What would you say? Yes. That's the right answer. See, I told you, easy answers. 
Shouldn't our heart's desire, our heart's prayer constantly be every day, God, whatever it takes for people to see you, do it. Now, verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's amazing. It must have been a special family. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, I want you to notice something here. Do you see the connection? The connection between how Jesus loved this family and how he acted? See the connection? It was because of, not despite of, his love for them that he waited. There's a reason. And this reinforces the big picture teaching of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation that God is always in control. Nothing escapes his notice. He's always in love with his children more than they can ever understand or comprehend. And this means that God knows exactly what he's doing. And I know, have you ever entered a day and you've gone, I'm not sure that you know what you're doing. <laughs> right? Is that sacrilegious? Or is that, is that a thought that you may have had? Or just, it's out there. Yeah. Uh, am I the only one? Even when our short-sighted perspective on world events, it is short-sighted. Even those in power are short-sighted. So we definitely are. Because <laughs> we don't know, we don't have half of the facts. Even when our short-sighted perspective on personal issues and relationships, God seems to be delaying. He always has in mind his glorious purposes, and they are always bound up with Jesus being known and Jesus being further trusted as he's being known. We often say to each other, and I know we pray together about this to God, that we want Jesus known in the lives of those we love, right? We want that. There's family members. We want, if, Lord, if you just open their eyes so they would know you like I know you. But doesn't that include we in front of them showing the character of Jesus Christ and trusting that very same Jesus in the frustrations of life? Verse 14, Then Jesus told them plainly, as he's there in Bethany. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. That had to be a revelation, huh? So that you may believe. But let us go to him. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. Martha, who, if you read the other stories about her, the impetuous and busy sister, immediately rushed out of the family home to meet Jesus. And what's the first thing on her lips? The what ifs, right? We, and we all do this. We all do, well, what if? And, and sometimes it leaves us paralyzed. We don't do anything because we're always thinking about the one if, what ifs before we even get to the what. But she's like, the what ifs. And these are the what-ifs that apparently she and Mary had been talking about, obviously been talking about, we're going to see later. He'd healed all kinds of people up to this point in his ministry. Thousands. Only a few months previously, he'd restored sight to a blind man, something never 
You never see this. If only Jesus had come when Lazarus was just sick, like so many others he had healed had been. He could have healed him too, but he hadn't come, and now Lazarus was dead, and it's too late. I love the next verse, verse 22. Martha continues, But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. I love that verse. Because she wanted Jesus to know that she still had confidence, trust in what God could give through Jesus. That's how Jesus operated. He waited for the Father who worked through him. If Jesus just said so. And this wasn't Martha trying to persuade Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. We, uh, it's clear when you get to verse 39 that she wasn't expecting that. She thought it was too late. Something else was going on. This is her affirmation. This is to be our affirmation of ongoing trust in what Jesus is all about, even though death is around us. Bad things are around us. And the response of Jesus to her sounds something like the sort of well-worn phrase that you and I might roll out to each other. And we, we roll out these phrases all the time, especially through difficult, grieving situations. And Jesus says at the funeral, your brother will rise again. Have you ever said that to somebody who is a fellow believer and you know that person died, knows Jesus Christ as their Savior, uh, their life uh, lived it, and so you, that's your hope, right? That one day they will rise again, as, as will those of us who know Jesus Christ. We say that. And, it's, and, and we should say that because Jesus said it <laughs> at a funeral. To which Martha replies with what sounded like a very usual response. Martha said to him, verse 24, Oh, I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And she's in mourning here. Martha's a good Jewess. She believed that there was something after death. The Old Testament made this pretty clear. And Martha, along with most of the Jews of her day, had this general feeling that physical death wasn't the end, that there was more. There was more than just this life and then you die. There had to be more, that there was some sort of life after death, but they were pretty hazy on that. And Jesus said to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus took that general orthodox response and view of Martha's and clarified it with a stunningly specific claim. He was saying that it's not enough to have some sort of general idea, this hazy view, some sort of life after death, like we all see regularly in the movies, right? But if you want to experience what life is really like, you must have a specific belief in him and him alone. This is it. He's the only one who can provide it. He's the only one who can give that kind of life real life. If you've been counting, and maybe you have, this is the fifth time 
in John's gospel that Jesus has used the phrase, what? It's two words. First one begins with I. There we go. Yeah, see. I'm, I'm, I'm helping you along now. Okay. I am. And on each of these five occasions, Jesus has been using a picture or a teaching from Israel's past, from the Old Testament. And he's telling them and showing them how that picture, that teaching back in the Old Testament was a direct pointer to him, that he is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament is actually talking about. If you want to know what a passage in the Old Testament is talking about, start thinking about Jesus. It'll help you figure it out. And here Jesus takes up the Old Testament teaching about this resurrection theme, this idea, and he's saying that all of that, everything the Old Testament says about life after death is its perfect fulfillment and its eternal completion is in him and him alone. This isn't about us. This is about God. And Jesus put it in two ways. You see the first part of that phrase? Whoever believes in me, though he die, so there will be death, yet shall he live. Sounds pretty straightforward. In other words, every one of us in this room who has put his or her faith and trust in Jesus Christ's death on the cross for your sin debt that you owe will experience after a physical death a new and eternal life. And Jesus promises that. Isn't that awesome? But second, Jesus develops it more by saying what some think are, is actually, a, you're, you're, you're saying two different things here. He said, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But you just said we're going to. The abundant life that Jesus promised doesn't just start when we die. I'm looking forward to it. Are you? Yeah, bring it. But, well, not right now. Well, yeah, right now. <laughs> I take that back. The abundant life that Jesus promised doesn't just start when we die. It starts at salvation. It starts the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ's death on the cross to pay your sin debt. It's right now. It's not completely fulfilled, but it's right now. It began when we put our trust in him. Death is only this momentary interruption as we move from the earthly scene to the eternal scene that we're actually already in, we just don't know it. Because everything around us is physical and it's dying and this world is corrupt. So in that sense, as Jesus says, we never really die. Isn't that awesome? I am immortal. Isn't that awesome? But it's not me. It's what? It's Jesus. Because he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. The real life Jesus provides will never end. Never end. And what is the condition to have this kind of perspective when you wake up in the morning, to have this kind of hope in life with all the frustrations that we're all going to counter later this afternoon? Verse 26, as Jason read it for us in the opening. Do you, Martha, believe this? Life doesn't require religious ceremonies, although they are very important and serve a purpose in our worship of God. Life doesn't require perfect church attendance, or, or, but I would highly recommend it to not neglect the gathering of the saints together. Life doesn't require hard work, but it's good to work hard. 
It's responsible. It glorifies God. Life doesn't require a stunning personality, but if you have it, show it, <laughs> please. All that is required for real living is faith in Jesus Christ. And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe. I think there's songs like that, isn't there, Matt? Yes, Lord, I think so, yeah. We should sing it next Sunday. Okay, never mind. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into this world. And then Martha goes and gets Mary. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, if you'd just been there, she says the same thing that Martha said, right? My brother would not have died. So they've been talking about this. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And in the shortest verse in the Bible, that the translators made the shortest verse in the Bible, there were no verses when it was originally written, verse 35, two words, Jesus wept. But notice the different responses to Jesus' sorrow about his friend passing. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he open the, who opens the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Martha has embraced it. Mary, she's still wavering. People, as usual, are split. And then Jesus, verse 38, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave. And a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, um, you know, it's been four days. By this time, there will be an odor. For he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not just tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone a shade of what is to come very shortly in Jesus' own life. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this out loud like I am right now on account of all the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me, that there's this connection here and when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Wow. I, I would have loved to have been there and just seen the shock and awe. John's overall purpose in writing this entire gospel are clearly seen all together in one place in this story. This story is living evidence of what Jesus actually did. It doesn't get much bigger than this, does it? All through the gospel, John's been recording remarkable miracles that Jesus performed. He turned water into wine. He healed the official's sick son. He restored a cripple. He fed more than 5,000 people. He walked on the water during a wild storm with wind, and he gave a blind man back his sight. 
But here is the climactic miracle, the seventh sign of his earthly ministry. He raised the dead. We can't let this moment escape us of how big this is. And not just someone who had passed away, but someone whose body had begun to decay and putrefy. And it's not in some unknown village in the middle of nowhere. It's in Bethany, just outside the capital city of Jerusalem. So little wonder that John recorded the following in the next chapter, in chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. Now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus, from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Oh, I bet they did. Many people, because they had heard that he had, been given this, he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. Here's evidence that could actually be checked out. It was authenticated. This was an account that could bear the closest scrutiny and examination you could talk to Lazarus. You could actually touch him if you wanted to make the journey to Bethany. I can't imagine him. I must have been for days outside of his home, right? Everybody's like lined up. We want to see the man who was risen from the dead. You know, CBS, ABC, NBC, they're all there with their cameras. It's like crazy. I'm glad they weren't there. This story is a huge finger point to who Jesus actually is. John doesn't want you and I to be left gaping at the miracle without grasping who it was who performed the miracle. You see, it's not the miracle. It's the miracle worker. It's Jesus. John wants us to understand vital and basic truths about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For one thing, he reminds us of the love of Jesus. You see the emotion. You see the weeping and the sorrow for sin-sick and sor sorrowing people. Here is, here is one who is not distant. Jesus is not far removed, even though he's God. He understands, he loves, and he knows us intimately, each one of us, more than we even know ourselves. He knows what it is to experience heart-wrenching pain. Hebrews 2, 17 to 18 says, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, which is to appease and gain God's favor, because we can't without him, for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This story moves our faith towards what Jesus promised, not towards or, or ruled by what the world promises. Those are empty promises. Those are unfulfilling promises that we're tempted with every moment of every day. People are fall, falling all around us. It's not enough to just enjoy reading these stories, telling them to children, 
these historical accounts or, or, or simply just grasping certain facts about who Jesus is. You can answer all the questions I asked today. Well, good for you. These truths are pivotal moments in our existence. That's why John wrote them. And they have to lead to a response. As John will say later at the end of his gospel, these are written, all these stories are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The only appropriate response to all these truths is to believe in and to trust in Jesus Christ. This was the outcome for many of those who had come all the way from Jerusalem to pay their sorrowful respects to a, a family who has a dead brother. And instead, they wind up celebrating his life because of Jesus. Complete flip. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. There's always, there's always that but, isn't there? But some of them went to the Pharisees, tattletales. They went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees all gathered the council. That's the Sanhedrin that rules uh, Israel under Roman authority. And said... So what are we to do? Because they got to make, there's a response that's required. What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, <laughs> everyone will believe in him. Oh, man, that'd be cool. No, they're not, they're not thinking that. And the Romans will come, and they'll take away both our place and our nation. Did you catch that? What came first? Our place. Oh, oh yeah, 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 and the nation too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see where their heads are at? But one of them, Caiaphas, who is the high priest that year, and he had been for about 12 years, at least a dozen years, said to them, you know nothing at all, you smart guys. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He's basically saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take them out. Nor do you understand, I mean, uh, the nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. What do you do with the evidence of your sin? Of your chosen pathway in this life? when it is so strong against you. Well, this is the problem facing the religious leaders, the ruling Jewish party. They had come to an understanding with the occupying Roman forces that they could control considerable money-making schemes and still enjoy a position of power and leadership in their community. They couldn't tolerate getting the Romans aggravated but because of Jesus nationalistic expectations were rising and there was a danger that there might even be some sort of a rebellion and to cap it all here's Jesus who's just performed the most amazing miracle that anybody could ever think of and he had raised to life someone who had been dead for four days 
And he had done this in a village that's right next to the capital city, so they couldn't discredit the miracle because everybody's going out there to see this guy and coming back with the story. But rather than stop, as religious people should do, but rather than stop and prayerfully think through and consider the evidence that was right there before their eyes, what's their gut instinct? To protect what they had in this life. It's the gut instinct of many of us all too often, unfortunately, to protect what we have in this life. It's no different from where so many people find themselves today. Rejecting Jesus' salvation and or rejecting his ways of living life, as he clearly spells out. Why? To protect our greedy acquisition of stuff. I'm sorry, it's getting convicting now. I'm not sorry. To protect our man-centered opinions about life and death, which have no biblical basis sometimes. And it's all designed to hide our sin. When it's exposed, we crawl under a rock to keep us from dealing with the reality and the consequences of our choices. This guy, Joseph Caiaphas, he came up with a response. At least he did that. And it was more perceptive and profound than he could ever have imagined. And not driven by any kind of lofty motives at all, he said, it is better for you that one man die. The original Greek text of that makes it plain that he was talking about the self-interest of the ruling Jewish party. Caiaphas used the imagery of a sacrifice. Did you catch that? A sacrifice that all of these religious leaders were a part of and knew of that were offered in the temple daily. Sacrifices that were a substitution an animal was sacrificed to take the guilt of a person, blood shed to cover sin. Better that animal perished than a human being would perish. And once a year, a scapegoat was sacrificed, and another one freed to symbolize this picture of a death in the place of, for the sake of, the entire nation of Israel. Let Jesus die so we can carry on. And John, who's writing this, as you just saw, he saw the significance of that irony. <laughs> what Caiaphas had said. Caiaphas had meant it in a very limited and selfish way, but John personally knew that the death of Jesus Christ was going to be a substitution of far greater significance. So he deliberately jumps on what he, he said, for your benefit and for my benefit. Yes, John says, you are more right than you know, Caiaphas. Jesus is going to die in the place of and for the sake of others, but it will be for God's glory, not your glory. And it will be for people all over the entire globe, not just Israel. And for some of you, this is a pivotal moment between life and death. For some of you. What will you do 
with all the evidence of sin that is stacked against you. You can't run and hide. It's there. God's Word exposes it. What is your response? Your sin separates you from God. Your sin separates you from this eternal, abundant life Jesus is offering here. What is your response? And for those of us in this room who have already received and trusted in so great a salvation, our hope is in this living, life-giving Savior right now, isn't it? It's right now. Our hope is now. For whatever is ailing us, we are loved, we are held, and we are secure. Not even the grave can hold you or hold me. No fear can or should paralyze us. Nothing. Jesus has already conquered it all by the shedding of his blood on the cross. It's done. As he said, it is finished. What is your response today, follower of Jesus Christ? How shall we then live? Well, I want to sing to God. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm not going to do it alone. Uh, I want to sing to God, and I'm not a good singer by, by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm a saved singer, and that's all that really matters. So rise with me and let your heart be heard as we share and sing to God and worship Him. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, having looked into this amazing story that you orchestrated, every single little detail, and gave back to us through your faithful servant, John. And Lord, we're moved. Our lives have been opened by your Holy Spirit. And some of us have business to do, but we all who know you have a life to live this afternoon that brings you honor and glory first and foremost in all we say and do. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.